This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, everybody can see we are living in very dangerous times. The geopolitical balances are changing, alarmingly in some instances, with Donald Trump, for example, who may well be the next president of the United States, warning NATO countries and signaling to Vladimir Putin that he's pretty much done with NATO and Putin can do whatever the hell he wants with NATO countries. It's a remarkable thing to say, given the situation in Ukraine, given the situation with Alexei Navalny. And to discuss all of this, we're joined by one of the most distinguished British journalists. His name is Ian Williams. He's an author and a journalist. He's been with us before. Ian won an Emmy and BAFTA awards for his discovery of and reporting on the Serb detention camps during the war in Bosnia. He was a foreign correspondent for Channel 4 News and NBC in Moscow and the Indo-Pacific in China. He's also covered conflicts in the Balkans, the Middle East and Ukraine. And it's a pleasure to welcome you to the stand. Ian, thank you very much for joining us. We live in very interesting times, which I know is a Chinese curse. But can you remember, Ian a more dangerous, volatile and threatening geopolitical order. I can't. I mean, there are so many fronts in this. There are so many things going on which are unnerving, which are potentially explosive, um, that you, you hardly know where to start. I mean, there are some common threads that run through them, but I certainly can't remember a time when things were so challenging. And I sometimes think about some of my the, the, the foreign editors and the, the, that I've worked for over the years. And I think that now when you're juggling all these various crises around, around the world, looking for ways of covering them, ways and patterns, yes. it, 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 it's, it's, a very, it's a very challenging thing now. And, and yes, indeed, very dangerous times. Let me ask you about Putin. What's the difference, Ian? between the Putin you observed in Moscow when you were there and the Putin of today, having 
Navalny, Alexei Navalny, murdered, persecuted, at the same time hosting Tucker Carlson, who used to work for Fox News and now is a major polemicist and a friend of Trump, and of course Putin, with the comfort of knowing that Donald Trump won't cause him any problems. I saw the interview with Carlson. It was, you know, a lot of gibberish and historical stuff. But there's a sort of, he looked sanguine, Putin. He looked different in a way. And with the assurance that Trump and the United States of America, and indeed the Republican Congress, won't cause him much trouble. How different is this Putin to the one you saw? I think that a lot of his basic instincts remain the same. He's always been an authoritarian. Um, But his room for maneuver, perhaps in the early days, was more limited. Uh, When he took over, when he became leader of Russia, it was, uh, he emerged from the, the chaos of the Yeltsin years. And I think back then, Russia was more pluralistic. There were more voices there. There was more opposition there. There was a lively opposition media um, and an emerging uh, internet. And I think that his instincts have always been authoritarian, but it took a while before he was able to eliminate the opposition, whether that was among the oligarchs, whether that was among his political opponents. Um, And what we're seeing now is, obviously, the the Ukrainian war has assisted him in terms of his ability to crack down and the the way he's done that. Uh, But watching that interview, it was was creepy and it was surreal. And it, I mean, calling it an interview is to flatter it, really. (laughs) It it, it was... uh, uh, I think later, e- even Putin said he thought he was he was going to be asked a few more challenging questions. Um, but it was looking at, at at Putin now and the way he descends into all this historic gobbledygook about the destiny of Russia. It's almost cult like. Yes. Um, it, it, you, you've got a dictator you provide, presiding over a system which is almost a textbook fascist setup um, and and resorting to um, sneering cultish like answers yes. um, it, it, no it, it's very dangerous to see the way he has evolved and the way he he, he certainly regards himself as being untouchable and, and the you know, the nature of Navalny's death the nature of Prigozhin's death before that um, the mercenary leader who yes aircraft was shot down and and other opponents within Russia and outside suggest someone that really doesn't care uh, the the um, the helicopter pilot that defected to uh, Ukraine very high profile defection was given a new identity went to live in Spain and of course this week he was gunned down yes. in Spain um, they they found him they tracked him and they murdered him um and these are very nasty and very high-profile assassinations, uh, and that's the way he likes it. Um, someone said to me, "Well, you know, it's just before it's just before the Russian election. The timings." I said, "Well, 
you know, you, <laughs> you can't call it an election. I mean, this is this is a joke of an election. It's not credible. And and at the end of the day, Putin doesn't care. Yes. Now, Prigozhin is fascinating. He was a thug, clearly. He had a private army, and yet he appeared to pose a threat at a certain point, and not too long ago, less than a year ago, he and his troops were marching on Moscow and got within 200 kilometers. And along the way, he got some support from crowds. There was pictures of him being fated by crowds and signing autographs and posing for selfies. Was Prigozhin a threat? It looked at that moment, I think it was a Saturday when this march got within 200 kilometers of Moscow. Was Prigozhin a threat? And how can we square, if he was, how can we square the Putin you've just been talking about and we've just been seeing in recent months, confident, on top of everything, with the Putin who may have been threatened by Prigozhin? I think that, I mean, Prigozhin was his own creation. Uh, yes. the, the Wagner group were a creation of uh, Vladimir Putin. I mean, Prigozhin's nickname was Putin's chef. Yes, of which he was at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, he emerged in St. Petersburg um, through a catering business that serviced um, Putin and his cronies. And, of course, he ran an internet um, trolling operation um, out of out of St. Petersburg on behalf of Putin. And I think at that time, uh, it was a time when Russia was really on the back foot in Ukraine, when the, the incompetence of the Russian armed forces, the number of, uh, of young recruits that were being killed, uh, the way the, the war was being fought, all the criticism uh, resonated with yes. ordinary Russians who were not too happy about the war anyway. And I think that Prigozhin articulated that, and at that time was quite a considerable threat to, to, to Putin. Um, and you know, he was taken out in, in quite spectacular fashion. Yes, and I'd also like to ask you about Boris Nemtsov. He was a formidable and courageous dissident, and he was murdered too. Tell us about him. I met Nemtsov a number of times when I was in, in Russia, um, when he was at the time working closely with uh, Boris Yeltsin, when he became uh, the governor of Nizhny, Nizhny Novgorod, the former town of Gorky. And a little in the, in the mold of Navalny, he was very charismatic. He was very outspoken. Um, he was very flirtatious. He was a, he was, uh, a larger-than-life figure who managed to get under Putin's skin um, through his personality, through his humor. Uh, he was widely liked um, and widely respected. And, of course, he was taken out in quite spectacular fashion also. He was gunned down on the Moscow Bridge, literally yes. yards from the Kremlin, yes. um, supposedly by Chechen assassins. Uh, but almost certainly at the direction of, of of Putin and those around him. And that was 2015. And at the time, he was the most high-profile opponent of, of Putin. If Donald Trump is 
elected in November for a second presidential term, Ian. How welcome will that be to the Russians? And could you tell us, because I know, I think I know, that Trump's real anger is towards China, at least insofar as we can read Trump. How will it affect those two relationships, Putin, US, China? I think that the first Trump administration was chaotic. And if you look at the evolution of, of Trump's policy on on uh, Russia and all the speculation about did Russia have something on him to explain his, his apparent warmth towards Putin, um, if you look at the evolving policy on China under the last Trump administration, from being an admirer of Xi by coming out with all sorts of flattering things. I mean, he likes strong men. He regards himself as one. Yeah, he likes authoritarians. Yes. And it was only later in his administration that he became more of a, a China hawk, if you like, and started um, Im imposing trade sanctions. Um, but more for a, a narrow mercantilist point of view, rather than any great concern for what was going on, what China was doing in the world or doing to its own people. And it's an interesting question as to how Moscow and Beijing would view the return of Trump, because clearly anything that Trump does to undermine his allies and the Western alliance would be welcomed in Moscow and, and Beijing. But at the, time, at the same time, he's so unpredictable. And which direction yes. would a, a Trump presidency go in. And he's clearly surrounded this time with people who have apparently planned a bit more carefully for his time in yes. power and how he might use that in whatever sort of capricious or, or vindictive way against his opponents at home and also his his allies in internationally. Um, it was intriguing to watch the, the Fox News interview he gave. Yes. It, it, soon after Navalny was killed, um, where he attempted to portray his own legal problems. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, I, like, it. I mean, it was, it was unhinged. You know, he, he called Navalny a brave man, but wouldn't bring himself to criticize Putin or, or to say anything more about the circumstances of, of, of um, Navalny's death. Uh, clearly, Nikki Haley, the only remaining opponent in the primaries and some way behind Trump is trying to make the most of this and to highlight how unhinged and, and, and dangerous this thinking is. Uh, but here we have Trump apparently being more hostile towards NATO uh, than, than he is or more critical of NATO than he, than he is of Putin after the, the, the death of Navalny. Now, a question arises about China and Taiwan, America's evident divisions, its evident disinterest in NATO, really, at least the America of Donald Trump and the Congress he seems to control. Will this embolden China in relation to Taiwan? Because I know you have covered China and that whole Indo-Pacific region. And there have been some incidents recently involving, in one case, a Taiwanese chasing a Chinese Coast Guard boat away from 
the frontline islands as tensions were rising, tensions are rising. If we assume Trump wins in November, it's not something, of course, anyone would wish around here. Will China be emboldened, do you think, or maybe even before the November election in the United States, will the Chinese calculate? America is in such a mess. It's divided. Europe is a mess. It's divided. Brexit has taken Britain out of the European equation. Now's a good time to go after Taiwan. Is that realistic in your view, Ian? And there is no formal pact between the United States and Taiwan, but Biden has said he would actually intervene. Is this an almost worse threat than Russia? Well, certainly China is trying to learn from what's going on in Ukraine, both in terms of the military missteps of the Russians, because don't forget the PLA is in many ways quite similar in the way it's organized to the the Russian armed forces. And he's trying to look at ways of hardening the Chinese economy, Um, against any potential sanctions that might be imposed on it um, if it were to become more aggressive against Taiwan. Um, But balanced against that, you've got these enormous economic problems in China at the moment, uh, which I think a lot of commentators are underestimating. I, I think there are real issues here, and I don't think the Chinese Communist Party under Xi is able to tackle them because the measures that would be needed uh, would imply a, 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 a reduction in the power of the party, if you want to. Yes. Imp, imp, but, um, and I think that that is something which is probably foremost on his mind at the moment. Uh, the Chinese economy is in a bad way. China is far more dependent on the global economy than, than, than Russia ever was. And that will be a calculation. Now, you could equally argue that it's an ideal way of distracting attention away from your economic problems is by you know, banging the nationalist drum, up, drum upping the ante over Taiwan, um, which is a chilling possibility. Um, I'd like to think that in the short term, um, the economic problems that yes. she's facing at home would probably take precedent over his desire to recover, quote-unquote, Taiwan. Um, that's the hope. But clearly, as you point out, that there's, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're looking at you know, when you know, he, want, he wants Taiwan, when is a good time to do that? Well, arguably, there's never a, a good time, but when America is distracted, when there's so much else going on in the world, um, when there's the likelihood of an unpredictable Trump administration coming in again. I mean, all these factors, I think, will be weighed up in in Beijing, and they'll be very aware of them in Taipei as well as they, they view the landscape ahead, especially, uh, you recall, in the, the, the Trump administration, you know, he applied that Taiwan was something that could be traded away. There was yes. a deal to be done. Um, so people will be will be very aware of that, and and you you kind of hope that there is contingency planning going on in Taipei, um, and in Brussels, and elsewhere, um, and people aren't just sort of shrugging off. Well, it's Trump, you know, it'll be different when he's in office because it may not, and you know that is that is very very worrying. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In your view, Ian, would China, in the case of Taiwan, which they genuinely believe is part of China, would they be more formidable than the kind of if you like Putin's ramshackle and not very well-organized tyranny, and indeed his botched, to some extent, invasion of Ukraine, which, of course, is now looking better than it did six months ago. It's a good question. I, I, I mean, don't forget that before Ukraine, there were a, a lot of people would argue that we're arguing that Putin was this masterful strate- yes. strategist. You know, look at they pointed at his invasions of Georgia, of um, of Crimea previously, this grabbing of Crimea. They looked at the way he at Syria, the way that he'd interfered and taken military action in different places around the world. A lot of it using formal, some of it, some of it informal. Uh, the 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 combination of cyber and more kinetic methods, and you know, he had a he had a lot of admirers. Um, I say that in not not of him personally, but yes. of him as a strategist. And of course, when, when Ukraine came along, all that went out the window because it, it was it was so incompetent. Yes, especially in those early days, and it, and it, and it was shockingly incompetent. Um, and of course, this had a lot of uh, 
Western academic commentators suddenly swallowing their pride and saying, well, you know, um, yeah, it, 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 because previously they'd been sort of talking about what a great strategist he was. Now, in China's case, I mean, China has not fought a war since 1979 when it invaded Vietnam. Yes. Um, and that was short-lived, and they were sent packing by a far more battle-hardened Vietnamese army. Um, and although the spending on the armed forces, the modernization under Xi, has been unprecedented, I can't think of anywhere else where it's been so rapid during peacetime in terms of the kit that they bought, uh, the kit they modernized, a lot of it with the specific purpose of taking Taiwan and deterring America from intervening, intervening around Taiwan, you know, carrier killer missiles, all sorts of, uh, every ferry that's built now in, in China has to be hardened um, for the ability to take tanks and other armored vehicles. You know, there's a lot of planning, there's a lot of modernization that's gone into it. Um, the whole sort of, as they call it, the informa informationalization of the armed forces, the attempt to integrate uh, um, artificial intelligence, cyber weaponry. Um, but it's all untested, and, and strategists will tell you that winning a war, fighting a war, is not so much about the kit. It's about coordinating all these different things and putting them all together. Uh, and, and it's also about uh, being flexible and smart on the battlefield. And, of course, the PLA is, is don't forget, it's, it's a party organization. Yes. Um, and, and there's been turmoil we've seen over recent months at the top of the, the um, rocket force, which is the main force that oversees nuclear weapons, but also ballistic missiles, which we assume would be rained down on Taiwan ahead of any invasion. Yes. And, and senior people, the top generals, have, have disappeared. Uh, we yes. assume that this is just the, the, the tip of the iceberg, that the purge goes far deeper. Uh, there's also been a purge of the military-industrial complex just months after a lot of these people were brought into senior decision-making roles because part of the whole strategy uh, Xi has followed is to try and integrate what he calls the civil sector with the military so that uh, innovations, technology, all sorts of other stuff which the civilian side acquires by whatever means is more readily transferable to the military. So all this, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of contradictory signals going on there, and, and, and some have even argued whether this purge at the top of the most important part of the PLA uh, suggests that they're just in no state to fight at the moment. That, right. that in fact, you know, if you look behind all the the shiny new kit, um, it's a bit shambolic. Um, it, but it's so you know, the 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 Communist Party of China is such an opaque organization that China read too much into this. Yes, is it, 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 is always is always dangerous. Uh, but you could argue that there's a cautionary tale here that the combination of in of economic problems, which I believe go far, far, far deeper than we've really even begun to appreciate, um, and this chaos at the top of the military, uh, I wonder whether they're really in a position at the moment to prosecute the sort of complex uh, operation that would be required to take Taiwan. Now, Ian, when you take an overview, and nobody is better positioned than you 
given your experience of the following facts. America's increasing isolationism or drift in that direction. The weakness of Europe, the Brexit factor in there, where you take out Britain and its nuclear arsenal from the European, because the way that Europe is now becoming so evidently divided and the possibility, in fact, the fact that even in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, America no longer seems to believe that they can't let Putin win. With your experience, is that about as dangerous as the world can get? And I'm not trying for a headline here or to be alarmist. We have to factor in also, of course, what's happening in Gaza and what's happening with this Israeli regime, which is about as right-wing and hardline and indeed bent on, it seems, causing enormous suffering in the Middle East. When you factor all of those things in, Ian, how do you feel? <laughs> I mean, it is, it, it, is, it is dangerous, and I think they are interconnected because uh, clearly whether it's Netanyahu in Israel or whether it's Putin in Moscow or Xi, uh, or, or um, Zelensky in Ukraine, they're, they're all looking um, at what is happening in Washington. And they're also looking at what is happening in these other crisis spots around the world as they calibrate their own policies and, and their own uh, behavior. So in that sense, even, even when certain things are not directly related to each other, um, they are yes, in, they indirectly are. because yes. people are making calculations, are taking judgments on the basis of behaviors that they're seeing in other crisis zones. Yes. Um, and this becomes doubly dangerous, of course, because not only are, for instance, the, the, the West's resolve in Ukraine um, affecting uh, the, the way Xi will will view Taiwan and, and, and view Western resolve towards certain things that he may or may not do. But there's also the possibility of missteps, that people take decisions or take risks or decide to do things or not do things on the basis of what they think might happen. Or, you know, the, 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 this, this web of interactions is actually sort of <laughs> rather more complicated even than, than, than just cause and effect. Yes. Uh, and, and then when you factor in huge uncertainties like, will Trump be re-elected? Um, and and the, the sort of medium-term calculations that will be going on in Moscow, in, in Beijing, um, in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem about this. It, it, is, it is very, very uncertain times. All, all, it's, it's, the old certainties are just, it's, it's not just that the old certainties have gone, but there are now so many new uncertainties to, to, to factor in there that the possibility of miscalculation um, or, ri- or, or, or risk is, is enormous. A final point. I'm 78, and I've always been interested in world affairs, politics, etc. I can never remember a world such as the one we are looking at right now. For example, 
young people talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, when we all thought we were, you know, doomed to nuclear war. Now, I was alive in 1962, but it was that Khrushchev had sent Soviet missiles to Cuba, and John F. Kennedy, the President of the United States, had to find a response. And yes, there were some dramatic days, but Kennedy did find the right response, and Khrushchev also found the right response, and it was over. The world I'm looking at now seems to me to be infinitely more dangerous, almost to the point of how could it be put back together again? Do you get that? I do. I mean, it was, I mean, even as as, as a correspondent, as a reporter, um, not that many years ago, it was a bit more com- compartmentalized. I mean, yes. there's one, there'd be one trouble spot and then there's another. And then you take a deep breath and something else would blow up somewhere else. Uh, but I can't remember a time when there was so much going on in so many fronts and, and all of it potentially very, very dangerous and so much more immediate. And the, in- the United States was the guarantor, as it were. It was. I mean, NATO started in 1949. We talked about the West and freedom and democracy. And of course, the Americans were the guarantor, were they not? They were, and it was a far less complicated complicated world. I mean, even during the Cold War, when you had the two, the Soviet bloc and, and, and yeah. NATO, it, it, was, it was more... It was it was easier. It was more straightforward. And I think also the other complicating factor at the moment is, of course, social media and the internet. Yes, which means that we're, we're all participating in a way that we didn't before. That it's all so much more immediate. Yes. It's so much more in your face. It's so much, and there's so much disinformation, uh, propaganda. Um, there's the, 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 so much out there. Um, which which wasn't the case before, um, but which demands greater vigilance. Which that, that it's so it, it's a combination of the number of things that that, that that are going on, but also the way that we perceive them and the way uh, the way it, it, it comes to us and and our and our, our ability to participate in that, whether it's on social media, through the internet, through open source intelligence. Um, in in a way that simply wasn't possible before, and you know, you could argue that with all that, it, it it would make for a far scarier scenario um, because of the way things can be, uh, the, the amount of misinformation and disinformation out there. But um, you, you could equally argue that at the moment there is a, a, a lot of complacency about just how serious this could all become. Um, even notwithstanding that. Yes, and of course we didn't get to speak about Iran, Saudi Arabia or India, but we will. We're very grateful to you for joining us, Ian. I should point out that Ian writes a regular column for The Spectator and his most recent book is The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. We're very grateful to Ian Williams, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.